Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armaso. Today, we have a truly brilliant guest. I sat down with Sebastián Seria, CEO of Contigo, a New York-based global company that combines the most sophisticated risk analytics and portfolio construction tools in the market, while also offering indexing services. Contigo is one of those revolutionary and successful companies most people have not heard from. Prior to launching his own venture, Sebastián was an associate professor of decision, risk, and operations at Columbia Business School. But after seeing the incredible entrepreneurial success from some of his former students, Sebastián decided to leave academia and launch his own venture back in 1998. And now join me in a wonderful interview with Sebastián Seria. Sebastián, thank you for joining us on the Words and Fintech podcast. Definitely very happy to have you here. Uh, can we start by hearing a bit about your background and, and how you got to your role today? Yeah, absolutely. So I came to the U.S. about 30 years ago. I'm originally from Argentina, and I came to the United States to pursue a Ph.D. in an area called operations research. So I got a fellowship to attend uh, Carnegie Mellon University, where I completed my Ph.D. more or less around 1992, 93. And then I did what is probably the case for many PhD students, or at least that's their expectation of their advisors, which is to follow an academic career. So I became a professor. I attended what is called today the Tepper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon. And uh, operations research you can do either in a business school or an engineering school. I ended up becoming a professor at Columbia Business School where I used to teach uh, decision models and operations. And this is very much you know, around my area of specialty, which has to do with the notion of building mathematical models to make better decisions. So I, I was an academic. I, I stayed at Columbia until 2001. But um, what happened in 1998 is I got bitten with the entrepreneurship bug, which was going around quite rampant at that time. That was, you know, the glory days of the internet bubble. And a lot of my students were actually starting companies. And I said, well, if they're starting companies and I'm their professor, why not me, right? And so I started this firm called Axioma with the idea of bringing to financial services a lot of this discipline about building decision, mathematically based uh, decision models, which would help financial professionals make better decisions. And in particular, my specialty was in the area of optimization, which has to do with the efficient use of resources. And one of the areas in finance where optimization is very much leveraged is the area of portfolio construction. So in portfolio construction, you're trying to make trade-offs between risk and return and maybe lots of other dimensions. And in order to do that, you use an optimizer because it's very difficult to make the decisions as to how do you invest in the different assets with all the constraints uh, that you may have as part of your objectives in terms of uh, maximizing the expected outcome or the expected return of your portfolio subject to a lot of conditions that have to do with 
risk on one side, but also maybe trading costs, maybe operational considerations. So all of that goes into a package, which is called the portfolio construction problem, which you solve by using, among other things, an optimizer. And that was my specialty. And that's how Axioma got started. And that's how I became an entrepreneur. That's fascinating. So an academic turned entrepreneur. How did your colleagues react when you left them? (laughs) Well, the the question is, how did my wife react first, you know, going from the safest job on earth to the unsafest job on earth? My colleagues, you know, I had two kinds of colleagues, the ones that said, no, look, just stay here, you're going to get tenured, and then you start your company after you get tenure, and then you can do more or less whatever you want. And then I had probably the best, one of the best advice that I got in my life, by the eldest colleague in my department who said, look, I think this is a very easy decision because academic life is something which is quite predictable. So what I suggest you do is you look at somebody who's 10 years older than you are, and then you ask yourself the question, in 10 years time, do you want to be like that person? And, you know, just go wild and pick the best one and say, you know, is that what defines success for you? And to me, the answer was quite obvious when I asked myself that question, and that is that I didn't really want to pursue an academic career any longer. I really wanted to take what I had learned and what I had studied over all these years and apply it to solving real-world problems. And the best way to do that is to do it in industry. And of course, you know, I could have chosen to work for somebody else, But uh, as an academic, I never worked for anybody in my life. So I think the natural step was to continue to not have a boss and be, you know, my own founder of my own company and then become the CEO. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. So you start Axioma. It's been over two decades at this point, right? It certainly, I'm sure you have a, a lot of a lot of war stories, you know, and through ups and downs. Tell us about those early days, right? Some of those challenges you encountered at the very beginning and then how the company has evolved over time. And I know it's gone through a couple of iterations and combinations. Yeah, so look, I think entrepreneurs are by nature underestimate the challenge of what lies ahead. I think this is part of the whole idea of being an entrepreneur is not to look at the challenges that we're going to face, but just look at the opportunities, right? So you tend to look at the world completely from one side. And I think that's what leads you to take the jump. I mean, if you really knew what are all the things that you're going to go through, it would be very unlikely that anybody would take that jump to become an entrepreneur. You know, we tend to be very unrealistic in terms of the time it's going to take to succeed. You know, you mentioned my two decades. So, you know, it's a, it's a long run. It's not a marathon. It's an ultra marathon. And you have to be ready to overcome many challenges multiple times along the way. Now, that's not to be said that there's entrepreneurs that have a really great success story that everything happens well for them from the beginning, but that's a little bit like winning the lottery. If you really look at the odds, those odds are so, so tiny that it rarely happens. In general, entrepreneurship is about a long haul. It's about a long battle. It's about, you know, many you know, many blows that you get in multiple parts of your body and you you recover, you know, you get up and you continue going. And that to me has always been the most important aspect of one of the reasons that I think I succeeded as an entrepreneur is because I have that stamina, right? I never gave up this idea that if we had to pivot in one way or the other, we, we did it. 
I like to say that, you know, I had plenty of challenges, but I also had lucky breaks. And that makes an entrepreneur successful sometimes is when the entrepreneur takes a good advantage of those lucky breaks. I like to say, you know, better be smart when you've been lucky. You know, a lot of people like to say better be luckier than, than smart, but I just don't believe in that. I think we all get at some points uh, through our entrepreneurship career, some points of, of luck. And the key is whether we are actually able to take advantage of those and make the best out of those uh, those times. But yes, there's you know plenty of war stories. We can go in, into them. But our you know my experience overall, when I look back, is I never remember necessarily those tough times. I very much remember the the, the successes along the way, and that's what keeps me going for the next one and the next one and the next one. And as an entrepreneur, you should also, you know, you could be a one-trick pony, which is when you do something, you just stop. But I believe that the most successful entrepreneurs are the ones that keep raising the bar and keep raising their ambition and just pushing themselves to the next level and the next level and the next level. And that's something that I constantly did too. How big is the team today? And how many were you when you got started? Was it just you or how did you recruit your initial co-founding team? Yeah, so at the beginning, you know, I got some former colleagues of mine, some students, you know, people that I could assemble to put together the initial starting team, all without experience. So we all made plenty of mistakes. And again, because it was the time where a lot of these companies were getting started, I think we all went through a pretty serious investment process. I changed my teams multiple times in my life. And I think that is you know, that hasn't necessarily broken any friendships. I keep in good uh, contact with most of the people that work with me along the way. But I think you realize over time that you need different skill sets, that some people may be looking for a different kind of path or they, not, they may not be willing or have the appetite that you have for risk-taking that you need to have as an entrepreneur. Today, we are 550 people across the globe. Maybe one of the biggest challenges that we have is that for the number of people we have, we're quite spread out in multiple locations. Well, today with COVID, we're spread out with in 550 offices, but, um, but normally we're also spread out in multiple offices, and that obviously makes the management side a bit of a challenge too. Is that something you envisioned from day one of becoming a global company, not just New York-based? Yes, I always like the idea of being a global player, but in our industry, it's inevitable. It's almost impossible to do what we do without becoming a global player because our clients are global by nature. So you have to be able to service them in multiple locations. Their organizations are global. Their operations are global. The way they manage money is across the globe. So it almost comes with a territory that you have to be willing to be a global company. And then, you know, you end up, you know, Contigo, which is the successor to Axioma. We didn't talk about that, but when I sold my company, we ended up forming a new company that is the merger of Axioma, which is the company that I founded in stocks, which is an index provider that was fully owned by Deutsche Börse. We ended up joining the two companies under the auspices of Deutsche Börse and General Atlantic, to form Contigo, which is the new company. So in part, you also start inheriting locations that were uh, part of the other company. We were, it was more or less a merger of equals in terms of number of people. So that, you know, we didn't always overlap in terms of the locations. So that also gives you new places uh, to do business and obviously new locations to manage. 
So let's, uh, let's dive a little bit into the business model and into your clients. So I understand you started by offering portfolio construction services. And I, I imagine your customers will be asset managers and then that kind of institution. And correct me if I'm wrong, but how did you evolve over time? And you know, how did you secure those initial clients? And then also, you know, what are some of the additional products that you've since added? I think one of the good ways to grow is you try to grow through adjacencies, right? So the portfolio optimization market per se, if you just try to count how many portfolio optimizers you can sell out there, it's not that big of a market. But the reality is that the same users of the portfolio optimizer also use risk models to assess risk, also use performance attribution tools and research tools to assess the performance of their portfolios. Their concept also use indices as part of their investment process. So one of the ways in which you try to grow is you try to find what are the adjacent places close to where you are, where you have already defined an expertise in a beachhead that you can use to cross-sell your products to other customers in the space. So uh, you're completely correct. Our clients tend to be asset managers, hedge funds, asset owners, and sell-side firms. All of them have to manage portfolios one way or the other. Traders manage portfolio, portfolio managers manage portfolios, and asset owners manage portfolios. And they all have different considerations that they take into account when building their portfolios. So our tool is a generic tool. We don't tell exactly people what to buy and what to sell. We give them a tool that allows them to deal with all the trade-offs so they can select what are the assets that are most convenient for them. But, you know, we ended up doing risk or building risk models. Why? Because the input to the optimizer, one of the key inputs, is actually a risk model. And, well, if you have a risk model, then you can assess risk. And you can actually, for example, decompose not only the risk of your portfolio, but also the performance of your portfolio. So there you go. You go to performance attribution and try to understand where the performance of your portfolios is coming from and so on and so forth. Right. You can start building more and more functionality. Now, you can also try to evolve within the institution. So, for example, we start selling to portfolio managers, but then who else assesses risk within an institution? The chief risk officer. So then you go, you ask the portfolio manager to introduce you to the chief risk officer and you say, can you introduce me to the chief risk officer? We have a risk system that we can actually deploy. And of course, what happens is the chief risk officer, especially after the financial crisis, has a big interest in using similar risk models to the ones you use by the portfolio manager. So then you can expand your offering to be more attuned to what a chief risk officer needs. And then when you talk about performance, for example, not only the portfolio manager cares about the performance of the portfolio, but also the people that report on portfolio performance. The performance team cares about the performance of the portfolio. The asset owner, which is going to uh, look at the portfolio manager, cares about where the performance is coming in your portfolio. So you end up generating this ecosystems of customers where one introduces you to the other and you have multiple points of entry to the financial institution. And that's for a fintech, a key aspect of potentially being successful is to just be able to sell multiple times to the same institution, to different buyers, different constituents within the place. Sounds like some of your clients are definitely some of the large financial institutions, very global, as you mentioned. These are not easy 
clients to secure, right? And I imagine early on when you when you first started selling, it probably was a bit of a challenging conversation. I, I myself, I worked in two of those large banks and I know how bureaucratic it can be. Tell us about that journey. Yeah, so that's, that's a wonderful question. So I, I started Axioma with nothing, essentially. You know, I went to Ikea to put together the furniture. We put together our first computers uh, by just buying motherboards and hard drives. So it was really a quote-unquote a garage operation, if you want to think of it that way. So here you show up at a Goldman Sachs or, you know, JP Morgan or Deutsche Bank, and, and here you are, this former academic that, of course, has an area of expertise. Um, you know, who's going to give you the first lucky break? So again, I mean, I think what happened to me is completely anecdotal, but it could happen to anybody. I had a former student that ended up working at Goldman Sachs, and actually they had a portfolio construction problem that was quite difficult to solve. It was not a trivial problem, and the existing optimizers that were available in the market were not able to sort out the various objectives and constraints that this portfolio construction problem had. So he called me and he said, do you know anybody who can do this? And I said, yeah, me. And that's how we got the first opportunity. And then, you know, um, I mean, obviously we didn't charge a lot of money. It was a student of mine. And I knew that I was, you know, sort of getting a, a unique opportunity to work with one of the leading firms in the world to do something that would showcase the abilities that we had as a provider. So there is that virtuous circle that we were working with Goldman. Goldman knew that they were getting a great deal because here this professor and his PhD students were working on this great problem that nobody else could solve. We were getting a great first client that was highly referenceable. And then, you know, once you have one client that's willing to give you a reference, then you start sort of changing the tune and, and you start saying, well, that client actually was able to get you know, great service from us and that leads to one and the other and the other. It's very difficult to build that track record. And I think in financial services and fintech in particular, it takes a super, super long time because there's a lot of downside to a lot of these decision makers. You call them bureaucratic but it's not just bureaucratic, is there's a lot of belts and suspenders that you have to put in for every decision that is made. There's millions, if not billions of dollars which are at stake. So you really don't want to take, the buyers don't want to take a risk on an unknown player. So you have to build that reputation really, really slowly with people that know you, that respect you, that in some cases have read maybe your academic papers and that are willing to give you that opportunity to prove yourself. In the US, you know, this is one of the beautiful things about this country. Americans tend to be much more open-minded than other people around the world in giving an opportunity to a startup. But get ready for a long journey because getting that reputation, and by the way, it has gotten harder since I did it. You know, there was no financial crisis, right? So post-financial crisis, vendors have to go through a lot of scrutiny within the big banks, you know, so it was a little bit easier for me. And of course, it is a lot easier now with a 20-year track record. But, you know, the best, the best advice that I can give anybody is to have a lot of patience. And we did it against um, competitors that had many more resources than we had, that had a much more brand recognition than we had. But always it was to be this client-centric, you know, get out of the way to do whatever the client is looking for 
and just be friendly from a commercial perspective. And for that, you need the right funding to be able to earn that reputation that takes time. Certainly, as, as you mentioned, you had a lucky break, but you were smart enough and well-positioned to use it, right? With that phone call from your former student. It's interesting. We've had a number of guests on the show, and then one of them was David Gurlet from Symphony. And you know, his first client was also Goldman, and that created a little bit of a snowball effect. So you know, I can see a parallel there, and, and it makes sense. It makes sense to go to the top institution. Yeah, so, I think I think there just to clarify on this because I think it's an interesting it's an interesting positioning, right? And I think Goldman has been very smart about doing this. They know they're taking a risk, but at the same time they know that they're getting a phenomenal deal, right? Because if they know the people that are starting the firm, if they know about the reputation and and they contain the experiment to some extent, why not give them the opportunity? And that's how you find a lot of the great companies that then later on they can invest in. And of course, they use their products. I mean, Goldman has been using our products for over 20 years. And, you know, as far as I can tell, they're very happy with it. So, Sebastiano, over the last couple of decades, something that has certainly been transformed is the power of technology. And I imagine that has played a significant role within your company. How has technology transformed the asset management industry, particularly from your viewpoint? So the first point is that we were from the beginning, because we were building optimizers, we were a software company. So we founded and we believed in ourselves very much as a technology firm from the start. A lot of our competitors, the quantitative finance firms that were competing against us, they did not necessarily think of themselves as technology companies. They thought of themselves as a quantitative, you know, they would provide data and quantitative models, modeling companies to some extent. And I think that made a difference for us to always distinguish ourselves in being sort of ahead of the curve relative to our competition. And this is not relative to other industries because the financial industry in many respects is way behind a lot of the other industries. And we can talk for a couple of minutes about that later on. But technology for us was always a competitive advantage. We always spoke about technology. We always were very early on into the API bandwagon so that our tools and engines could be easily integrated into client systems. In 2011, we decided to go to the cloud for building our RISC system, which was the first system fully built, fully built in the cloud as we like to say was born in the cloud. It was not built somewhere else and then taken to the cloud. Technology can be a huge competitive differentiator for us and for other players, and mostly because our clients need technology to improve their processes. A lot of their processes are highly manual. A lot of their systems are antiquated. And with their margin compression that is going on in the financial industry, the only way to get out of this puzzle is to really use technology as a way to leverage their business efficiently. So technology is the key word uh, from our perspective, but to a large extent, technology is not something that a lot of these companies really embrace because they're dealing with a lot of legacy applications, a lot of systems that were built a long time ago. And to a large extent, a lot of these financial institutions until recently uh, technology was not necessarily at the center of their business, right? Technology was, you know, there were the IT guys that used to talk about the IT guys that 
uh, were putting things together and other places were taking quants and converting them into technologists, right? But very rarely you would get one of these financial institutions really thinking about technology as their business. I tend to think about banks as technology companies. I tend to think that if you don't invest in technology, you can fall behind and you can severely be disrupted, right? So this is, of course, something that is rapidly changing. Technology is being embraced by financial institutions right now. And I would say that one of the reasons that is being embraced is because they see this as a way out of the margin pressures that they have right now. Yeah, and certainly the differentiation of digitally native, say, neobanks or asset managers is the fact that they're born through the latest technologies of the day. How do you see this evolving? Because it's a very interesting dynamic. Banks themselves, they understand this, but they have the weight of the legacy system. Where's the key? How are they going to break free from that legacy? It's very hard. It's very, very difficult. So, you know, I, I, I was giving an advice to a CRO of one of the major banks, and I was saying, you have to think about this as the Manhattan Project. You know, you have to take people out of the bank. You have to put them to rethink the bank from scratch from a technology perspective and just, you know, not think about an evolution because it's going to be very difficult to just evolve the systems that you have. The biggest problem, and this is what I was referring a little bit earlier on, is that the financial institutions essentially missed the technology revolution of the late 2000s because of the financial crisis. So at the time, you know, during the 2000, let's say, during the 90s, of course, at that time, banks and technology, you know, it was a side business. It was the IT guys, right? What happened in the year 2000s before the financial crisis is banks were growing so rapidly that they needed to invest in technology as a way to get the business going because they needed to make money. So they ended up building sort of a Frankenstein of a footprint of a technology base. And without technologists, right, with people that just put, assemble things very, very quickly because they needed to make money. And then the financial crisis hits. And the financial crisis hits at the same time that these technology giants were starting to really change the scenery of what was happening out there in the world. That was, you know, when Microsoft made a, a huge transformation, um, the beginnings of Google, you know, Amazon also making a huge transformation, the early days of the Facebooks, the PayPals of this day. So there was a huge technological transformation that took place as the banks were getting hit with the financial crisis. So what happened is the banks missed it. They completely missed the boat on the technological transformation of the late 2000s. And then when they woke up of their, you know, I call it their coma because they didn't know if they were going to be alive or dead during that time. On top of it, they start feeling the move from active management to passive management, which significantly brings down uh, the fees. So they have significant fee pressures. They miss the technological revolution. They were spending all this time essentially adapting their systems to deal with regulatory pressures. And here they find themselves over the last five years saying, what are we going to do? Because we could get disrupted. Technology has significantly evolved. Now you have the cloud, you have all these systems, you have APIs, you have microservices architecture. How do we get ourselves to that? But it's exactly what you say. You know, it's not so easy to do because you have all these legacy systems running 
that are essentially running the show. So it's a very, very difficult transformation. What I can tell you for us, though, is that the evolution of the conversation since 2011, when we moved to the cloud until today, things have changed 180 degrees. So, you know, they used to tell us we're never going to use the cloud. You know, we cannot get confidentiality. It's too risky, so on and so on and so forth. And now everybody is looking at us saying, oh, you guys were way ahead of the curve. How can we take risk applications and make them the centerpiece of our transformation to the cloud? So the cloud and the transformation from a technology perspective is in the minds of almost every asset manager today, and they have to do it right now. We'll see what happens in the context of COVID, but certainly before COVID, if you just counted the banks or asset managers that were going through a significant uh, digital transformation project, I think almost all of them were in the midst of one. So we'll see whether there is a lot of delay because of what is happening right now, or a lot of those projects, you know, go back into full swing. Yeah, certainly fascinating to watch. So Sebastian, you mentioned, of course, there was this technological revolution taking place just as the crisis was hitting. And in many ways, it created a perfect storm for the fintech revolution to really take a lot of speed, right? So crisis, we know, can be disruptors. We had the 2008 crisis, and we know what happened then. How is it going to look after the COVID-19 crisis? That's obviously the gorilla in the room. It's affecting every single business, for better or for worse. What's your view of how are you preparing strategically for the next? I think it's, so I think there's good news and bad news for this, right? So for us personally, for us as a company, for Axioma, the financial crisis was a blessing. I mean, I cannot repeat this aloud in front of my clients because of course they say, well, it was terrible for us, but it was good for you. But the reason it was good for us is because it provided a discontinuity. It provided a discontinuity that essentially led everybody to question whether the models and the systems that they were using were the right systems, in particular when it comes to risk assessment. And that gave an opportunity to a new player like us that was trying to be disruptive and was trying to be different to offer a new way of looking at risk. And that gave us the opportunity with a lot of our existing clients today. So I think that the reason that it's not necessarily all good news is you have to be willing or you have to be able to weather the storm, right? So if, you, if this catches you at a time where you were running out of cash and you now need yet another round of financing, and of course, everybody's slowing down the purchases and budgets are being shrunk and everything else, then it could be a fatal blow. You may not be able to overcome it. So my advice to those entrepreneurs that are going through this crisis and saying, you know, what do we do now? My advice is very simple, survive, you know, figure out a way to survive. Because when the crisis is over, when the world goes back to a certain level of normality, that's the time that if you manage to survive, it's going to be the glory days for you as an entrepreneur, as a disruptor. So you have to be willing to overcome this crisis. You can use it to build reputation with a few clients that are willing to give you the chance. Not everybody's going through the same level of disruption right now, but just do whatever you need to do to survive the time. That to me is the key of what you do in a crisis. And that means you have to run the company differently. Uh, you have to treat your customers differently. Uh, be very conscientious that it's difficult to get new customers, in particular in the context of COVID, because you don't get to meet those clients in person or those prospects in person. And because in times of crisis, the prospects 
tend to not buy from somebody they don't know, but it is a perfect time for your existing clients to buy more from you or to do more with you. So take that opportunity and take advantage of it. Because as I said, if you manage to survive, this is the perfect time for disruption. After the crisis, disruption kicks in. And that's when the new players that don't have the brand recognition, but have new ideas, that have innovation to bring to the table, can really distinguish themselves. What do I see after COVID? I see that you know, as much as in 2008, what we got as a result was regulation. You know, clearly the big, big consequence of the financial crisis was a significant increase in regulation and all the businesses that came from that. We also got stronger banks, which of course led those banks to survive this particular crisis a lot better than they would have had we not gone through that particular time. But I, I think the big change in the horizon is sustainability. I think not only people will embrace technology and all the things that we were talking about before, but a lot of companies, a lot of asset managers, a lot of investors, both asset owners as well as private investors, are going to start thinking a lot more closely about sustainability. What does that mean? And that means that you know, the behavior of how you invest may actually change. You may all have heard the words of ESG, and you know, ESG is really the big trend which we expect to come out of the crisis on top. And having direct access to the asset managers, I imagine you're already seeing the CSG trend picking up. Yeah, you see it, you see it everywhere. And to, to a large extent, it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy too. You know, if people start moving assets towards sustainability, those assets tend to do better. They tend to outperform their non-sustainable benchmark counterparts which means more assets flow into them because you also have the performance. And then you, you end up getting into this cycle where all these companies start doing better and everybody starts talking about sustainability, not just as a criterion for doing good to the world and good to the planet, but also because of performance. So we obviously see it you know, in every conversation, whether it's an asset owner conversation or whether it's a wealth management conversation, today sustainability is at the center of that discussion. Now, sustainability is a big topic. It has many dimensions. And uh, clearly, you know, you can get on, on one side the sustainability development goals from the United Nations. On another end, you can have just the discussions around climate. But of course, there's a lot of things in between. We do see climate as a strong area of focus within the sustainability theme. But, you know, we also see significant uh, efforts around diversity and around social responsibility and a lot of the goals that the United Nations has put forward. Certainly exciting news and can't wait to see how, how it evolves, right? Well, Sebastian, this really has been extremely interesting. I know I've learned a ton. Before we go, we always like to ask our guests about some of their personal hobbies and how perhaps you spend some of your time outside of Contigo. My personal hobbies are things that have to do with boards. So I used to skateboard a lot when, when I was a kid. And, you know, today I'm into electric skateboards. These are uh, very fun but dangerous machines. I call them my flying carpets. So you just glide and float. But anything that has to do with boards, I love, you know, sort of paddle boarding, surfing, bodyboarding too, skateboarding, as I said, and then, you know, skiing. 
you know, tennis, all, all kinds of different things. I have one hobby though that is not, that nobody, well, very few people would guess on the sports front, which is boxing. I really like boxing a lot. And finally, I love to cook. Cooking is, is my thing, you know, in particular Spanish food. Paella is my specialty, but I also make uh, amazing pizzas. So I, have a, I own a pizza oven, which is one of my most prized possessions, a wood-fired Italian pizza oven. And um, I strongly recommend that. So COVID has been your time to shine as a cook. COVID has been my time to shine and my wife hates it because, you know, our, our separation of duties is I cook and she does the dishes. And as she likes to say, you know, she associates COVID with doing a lot of dishes because I cook a lot. So lately I haven't been cooking as much because I need to keep a happy marriage. So, <laughs> well, Sebastian, thank you again. Really fascinating conversation. Now you're now part of the Wharton FinTech and Wharton family. We'd love to see you on campus. I imagine you stopped by from now and then around Columbia Business School, but now you have a, an open invitation to stop by Wharton. Thank you. No, thank you so much for making me part of this. I really appreciate uh, you inviting me to do this. And yes, I frequently actually go to several business schools, not just Columbia. You know, when we go back to traveling, I can certainly visit and give a talk at Wharton. I've been there before and I'd love to come back. Thank you very much for making me part of this. Thank you, Sebastian. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.